You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. The year was 2007, and I had been married to Carla for 10 years, and we had a seven-year-old at this time, it was around February, a five-year-old and a just-turned three-year-old. We'd been in ministry together since day one of our marriage, but at this point I'd only been the lead pastor for less than two years. We'd just been through a very difficult time in the church and uh, a lot of relational fractures and schisms, if you will, very painful time. And uh, we found ourselves, well, it wasn't like it was a surprise, but we, at the invitation of a friend of mine who was in ministry, uh, we found ourselves on an airplane with all of our children flying to a country that I had never been to before in my life. Some 833 hours later, at least that's what it felt like flying that far for the first time, we landed in Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, got off the plane, and it was the middle of the night, and it was dark. And for any of you know, if you've ever been to a place for the first time, even in the daylight, it can be a little bit unsettling, but to be somewhere for the first time in a foreign country that you'd never been before, and it being in the middle of the night, it just kind of heightened the, the tension, if you will, for, for at least for us as a family. Uh, we meet my friend, we get in his car, we load up the entire, uh, all the luggage and the kids, and we drive what seems to be for an infinite amount of time. Again, everything now seems super long, and it's dark and we're driving around these windy roads on this mountain on the edge of a cliff next to an ocean. And did I remind you, it was dark. And so this just kind of caused the tension and the restlessness to increase a little bit. We finally get to where we're staying and we unload the car and unload the kids and they're asleep and we try to take them up into this place that they're going to be sleeping and as we're getting them settled and laid down in the beds, we realize that it's not the same place, at least for the boys, to where we're staying. Like it's, it's in a separate building. I mean, it's kind of a, a larger compound of buildings, if you will. I mean, like three different buildings, but they're separate, like an old farm type place. And, and so they're in this one place in the middle, and then there's another building over here, and then Carl and I are in another building over here. And it's in the middle of the night at a place I've never been to. The wind is howling like I've never heard howling wind in my life. It's like, it's just a bad movie. And like, we're just going to leave our kids up here, okay. And so we go downstairs and we get in the bed and we finally go to sleep and we wake up the next morning to kind of one of the most gorgeous places on earth. And that kind of settled us a little bit in the daylight because as you know, in the darkness, things are just, they seem different. There's a metaphor for you right there. But We stayed in country for a few weeks, and as we stayed, and the longer we stayed, the more comfortable we became, but it still wasn't home. And with any of us, we find ourselves in environments or places that are not our home. Maybe it's in a foreign country, or maybe it's in a a different location or a different situation altogether. There's this kind of uneasiness, this restlessness that, that is nagging us in the back of our minds, reminding us, this is great, and this is fun, and this is nice, but you're not home. And when conditions worsen in those particular places, it can be even more difficult 
especially if it feels like things are never going to change. In his letters to the believers in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, Peter is writing to some people who are not feeling at home at all. These conditions had worsened, if you will, and they're not getting any better for these people. And I, I want you to read with me from the scripture today in our text in 1 Peter, how Peter was encouraging them. Literally, we've sung some of the things that Peter is encouraging them with today already through, through the songs we've been worshiping with today, which is what happens when we gather together. And we're going to see Peter encourage these believers in very similar ways to which I would encourage us today, and that's why we turn to God's Word. So, 1 Peter, if you have your Bible, chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. That's our text for today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Benthnia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're starting a new series today called Chosen Exiles. I love that because that should describe us today, at least metaphorically in some ways. And although that is kind of the description of us, this is the description quite literally of the people that Peter is writing to, the believers that Peter is writing to in this verse that we just read. In this first verse, Peter gives an honest description of who his audience is when he says this, which we just spent a lot of time singing about who we are. He says this, to those chosen, then... He puts a little parentheses, if you will. It's just like, it's kind of a side note. To those chosen, albeit, he says, living as exiles, dispersed abroad to all these different places that I'm not going to read again because I probably butchered the pronunciation of them. But he's, he's saying, listen, I've, I've chosen you, although you're dispersed. Then he comes back to it in verse 2. Chosen, he reminds them again, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ chosen exiles. And while this certainly can be used as a spiritual metaphor for us today, in context, it wasn't metaphorical for these people at all. It was real. 
It was a real problem. It was real and it was painful in their lives. These people were in fact living in low social conditions. And whether the Bible translation says they were exiles or whether they are aliens or foreigners in different translations that uses all those words, the Greek translation there basically means that they are without legal protection. They are not citizens. They have no rights. It is a temporary home. They will be called sojourners, if you will. They're exiles. They've got no rights. It also meant, as I said, that this was a temporary place. They weren't going to stay there forever. They were sojourners. So Peter is writing. This isn't their home. He's writing to these people that are not in their homes, in essence. They're in the church. They're believers. And he's encouraging them in their faith in the midst of their pain. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel that God is encouraging us. Peter's encouraging them. We can be encouraged today that God is with us even in the middle of pain. Here's their pain. Pain that's associated with their lowly station in life. They don't have anything. They're predominantly people from a slave class. They're disenfranchised. But on top of that, not only are they socially marginalized people, but now their new faith in Christ has led to an association that had no social acceptance either. It wasn't like they got Jesus and everybody was cheering them on. No, at the very least, it exacerbated their social conditions. It made it worse. So they're double exiles in essence. They're exiles because of their actual social status in society. And they're also exiles because of their commitment, if you will, to Christ. So chosen exiles, and every time we say that or use that throughout this series as we're going through the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, whenever you hear that, I want you to know that really describes hardworking, poor people who had no rights, no protection, but who, through the grace of God, found life in Christ and fellowship in the family of God. That's the good news of the gospel that Peter is reminding them in this passage. What he's saying is, although you don't belong to anything here in this situation, you do belong to something better elsewhere. Now, we can say amen to that. We can rejoice in that. But here's the thing. I want to ask you honestly. Let me ask you, how comforting does that sound to you? Well, I know it stinks here where you are. But there's something better for you somewhere else. Well, praise God. Where? And how do I get there? See, this is hard to hear and accept when you're going through it. Like, that's not easy. And I think knowing this, Peter starts to encourage them about who they are. Which again, I keep reiterating, God in his, in his providence, we've already been singing these very words of who we are. And that's what Peter's reminding them. He's like, this is who you are, and this is how you became who you are. Here's what he says, they have been chosen. That's who you are. And then he explains to them how they've been chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Do you hear the Trinitarian love being poured out by the love of the Father, through the power of the Spirit, through the blood of Jesus Christ? You have been made chosen. That's what he's saying to them. It's like encouraging them. 
So he says this, by the foreknowledge, how, how's he, how have you been chosen? By the foreknowledge of God the Father. And listen, no matter what your theological stance may be on this, foreknowledge, if you look at some translations as it says election or, or predestination, no matter what your theological stance on this, we can be assured of this. Whatever God does and however God the Father does it, it is loving. You cannot understand something, but it doesn't mean that God is not loving. We don't come to him unless we are first drawn by him, is what this passage says. Peter is referring to this first work, if you will, of the drawing of the Spirit. So we know by the foreknowledge of God, no matter what, that God is loving and determined to choose them. And then he says, how? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Both theological reasoning and spiritual experience confirm that God prompts us to believe by the drawing, the convicting, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's not in our own wisdom. It's not in our own strength. It's not because we just had an aha moment. No, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, it starts, if you will, pre-conversion as the Holy Spirit begins to draw us to himself. It's the first aspect of sanctification where God's gracious act of turning turning sinners into saints as he draws us into being his people. That is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then finally, Peter tells the church people who they are and what their purpose is. And he says, what's your purpose? To be obedient. It's to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? To accept the covenant that God has cut with us through the blood of Jesus. These believers have been chosen by God so that they may be obedient. That is, so that they may respond to the demands of the gospel and become children of obedience by faith. This is our part. The first two, if you will, deal with God's part, right? It's God's the Father doing the drawing through the Holy Spirit. And now our part is to be obedient to what God is doing. And as we do that, the blood of Jesus is a reminder of the covenant that we are in with God. This is supposed to be encouraging. Like the Old Testament would say, the the sprinkling of the blood of the animals. That's what the, the priests would do. They'd sprinkle blood to remind everybody of the covenant that had been cut, that their sins had been forgiven. And now we're saying, to remind you through your obedience, to remind you what Jesus has done and be sprinkled with his blood, that he's cut a covenant with you. And God is a covenant keeping God. He never breaks his promise. So what do we make of this? There's something to be learned about our identity in this. This is what Peter's trying to say to them. I know it's difficult. I know you're suffering, but this is who you are. With all the competing voices, even in our own culture, in our own lives, telling us what we should be, what we could be, what we need to be, what we're not, what we shouldn't be. And on top of that, all the difficult things that you'll go through, the painful realities of this life, like being impoverished or being marginalized or sick, hurting, dying. Here's what he's saying. When chosen by the Father, we can be secure in our identity even though these things are happening. We are defined by our identity in Christ, not by our physical circumstances in life. We are defined by a loving Heavenly Father, not a physical or social location in life. We are defined by what Jesus has done for us, not by what's been done to us. Amen? Amen. That's good news. It's not that those things don't matter. They do matter. And it's not those things that have happened to us, been done to us, that we've born into, and all the things that go on in this life. It's not that they don't have an effect on our lives. They do. But there is something, really, someone that is greater when it comes to our identity. And his name is Jesus. 
See, what we find in this passage is Peter is attempting to make sense of his reader's present social location in this Roman Empire where they are exiles and oppressed in light of their newfound social location in the family of God. Why? Because being a Christian didn't make life easier for them. Have you ever been told, hey, if you just become a Christian, life will be easier? I, I hope that you don't believe that. What I want you to believe is, is that life is strengthened by the presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit in your life. It's different, but the, the pains and the realities and the difficulties and the trials and the temptations don't go away. They're still present. So what we find is Peter encouraging them because their life in, in Christ didn't change their social position. It didn't give them a newfound, oh, I gave my life to Jesus, and now I'm in a newfound position of power. No, they had no new position. They had no influence. They had no money. They had no political power. Why? Because they're exiles. They're Christian now, but they're still exiles. And because of this, Peter's encouraging them with this truth. Because you are members of God's household, chosen, he's saying, your social location as outcasts have no bearing on who you are in the fullness of reality in Christ. It has no effect or relevance on who you are in God's estimation. It has no impact on who you are and what you could do in the context of God's ultimate design in history for your life. And while they are socially estranged and exiled in Asia Minor, while they are excluded and powerless and homeless in the Roman Empire, in their true identity as God's chosen family, they are citizens, they are included, and they are at home as God's people. Can I remind you that's who you are in this life as well? But here's the problem. Most of us are not persecuted for accepting the gospel. When we read this, this is a little foreign to us because most of us don't become a social pariah when we tell people that we go to church. Doesn't mean that you don't get a little pushback or maybe a little side eye. And sometimes, yes, we go through difficulties because I believe it would be a stretch to say that we wouldn't. It's ignorant to say that when you're living boldly for Jesus, you're not going to experience some bit of animosity or maybe even levels of persecution because I believe that you will. I believe that we will go through difficulties because of our decisions to follow Jesus and to stand up for the truth of his word. I believe the Bible promises that's inevitable. But when it does... And whatever types of pushback or persecution comes our way, although we don't really understand this context, whenever, whatever level comes our way, here's what Peter's saying. Do not lose heart and do not lose hope. You have been chosen by God. As a caution before I move on, I think sometimes we can create an almost self-imposed false sense of persecution as it relates to our secondary identities. Hold on, let me get a drink of water before I explain that. What I mean by that is we confuse our secondary identities, like where we live, how we vote, what we have. We confuse our secondary identities with our primary identities. And if our secondary identities aren't doing well or are not winning or not whatever coming out on top, somehow we begin to forget that we have a primary identity and begin to act like it. So here's what I want you to understand. My primary identity is not American. 
My primary identity is not conservative, progressive, liberal. It's not rich or poor. It's not labels that other people give me and that have given me in life. My primary identity by what God has said in his word is chosen by God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus as I'm obedient to him. That's my primary identity. And my primary social group isn't this club or that club. What he's saying is your primary social group is the body of Christ, the church. Those are your people. Okay, but these Christians are suffering. This is real suffering. And do you know how Peter encourages them? Do you know how he cheers up these suffering saints? He says, sing a song. I mean, I like that. I don't know how much they like that, but it's like, sing a song. Wait, wait a minute. We've given our lives to Christ. Nothing's really changed. We're still exiles. We still have no power. We still have no influence. We're still dying. There's still things going on, and we're supposed to sing a song? And here's what I want you to understand. That's what Peter does. It's like a New Testament psalm right here in verse 3 and 4. And here's what we see. One of the best ways to drive away the fears and the anxieties of this life is by singing a song of praise to our God. One of the best ways to drive away the things of this life that actually don't compare to the greatness of our God is to actually affirm the greatness of our God in the middle of the difficulties of life. It doesn't make sense, I understand. It seems really counterintuitive at times. If you tell somebody that's what you're doing, they're like, well, that's really weird. And you can say, yeah, I know it seems that way, but I can tell you this, every Sunday when I show up gathering together as God's chosen people, there's something that happens in my heart and in my mind. And even though my circumstances may not totally change, there's something changing inside of me and I can't explain it, but that's what God's word says to do, that when I got saved, I became a singer. When you got saved, you became a singer, whether you could carry a note or not. And we give praise to God. God because he does something inside of us when we begin to do that yes it's true and here's what happens when we begin to sing to God as we did this morning actually you know what I began to write down some of the lyrics that you were singing that I were singing that that this Peter would probably say that's great sing that again I if I'm not dead you're not done okay well God look he said if you're not dead I know you're exiled but I'm not done Okay, this is my testimony. By Jesus Christ the righteous, I'm justified. Joy's coming in the morning. We always think in 24 hours, uh, a God, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. I don't know where we get the idea that joy is just coming exactly in 24 hours from right now. That joy that's coming in the morning might be the morning that Jesus returns for us. In some ways, there's that joy of Christ's return. And though the night may seem weary, I know joy's coming. You're just saying that. I'm going to wait on you. I've tasted your goodness, and I'm going to trust in your promise. Listen, these are just things that we sing. Why? Because it helps us to remind us of the truth in the middle of the trench. Why? Because you're in a spiritual battle. And so sometimes we're seeing this truth. I was just thinking, like, I'm seeing this truth from a trench. A good reminder that also I'm not alone in this trench, that I am with other exiles. I'm not one exile. I'm amongst many exiles. I'm along with you, a new community. And it's more than just me living in trying times and trying to fight for my battles in life all by myself. Oh, no, 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 no. Listen, church, what I mean is this isn't just individually for you today. This is like, how am I going to make it through? No, it's like, how are we going to continue to live through the difficulties of life and not lose hope? 
How are we going to do that as the church? How are we going to remind each other as chosen exiles of the hope that we have in Christ when our displacement from our eternal home has us in a location that gets dark and unsettling and painful and too much to bear? How are we going to continue to have hope? And here's how Peter does just that. He says we should follow his lead, really, and I think we should. In the middle of a terrible pain, here's what I'll outline and then just go through briefly. Peter leads in heartfelt worship, which I said, hey, let's just sing a song of praise to God right now and praise him for who he is. Not what I'm going through, it stinks, but I'm going to praise God anyway for who he is. Secondly, I'm going to remember and meditate on the promises of an everlasting treasure that we have in Christ. And then finally, he's going to point to a bigger perspective of God's purpose in the pain. And all of this is meant to loosen pain's terrifying, paralyzing grip on believers that are going through difficult stuff. So let's look at the song. He starts with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is heartfelt worship, but as I said a moment ago, it's kind of, it's, it's truth from the trench. It's worship from the, uh, the battle, if you will. And it's a battle cry against the darkness and the opposition and the grief of this world that is real. It's an emphatic reminder of God's supremacy over all of that to believers who might become blinded by the suffering that we go through in our lives. It's a call to wake up from the numbness of pain into hope and into worship. And for most of us, listen, it's not literally going to be living as exiles for most of us. The single greatest threat to our faith at least in our context, our faith in God is in his promises. The single greatest threat oftentimes is our long treks through the deserts of this life where it seems like God is gone. That's usually our most difficult time where, where God didn't seemingly come through like we hoped and we're dealing with disappointment. How are we as believers going to respond when things go badly? That's the question. When adversity, disappointment, and crisis hit really close to home, does it undermine our trust in God? Does it undermine our hope for peace and joy and safety and the goodness of the gospel for our chosen exiles of this passage? That's what Peter's saying. Since following Jesus, these believers have not found peace, safety, or relief from their social condition like they expected, and their lives continue to be marred by inconvenience, disappointment, persecution, and even death. And Peter's answer at the immediacy of that is, praise God anyway. Praise God anyway. How do you do that? Like, I, I, I could say that and be like, yeah, let's... But man, when that pain and that suffering continues to linger on for generations, maybe even, how do you do that? And the song tells us how. It says, not by willpower, not by pulling up your bootstraps and just giving it your all. That's not going to work, my friends. It says, not by that, but you're going to do this by God's great mercy. To modernize an exhortation here, don't sleep on the mercy of God. It's God's abundant, great mercy that is new every morning, but also new in the context of the fact that we are reminded how merciful God is until that day or we are with him face to face. Because without God's mercy, none of us are here. Without God's mercy, none of this is going on. Without God's mercy, nothing else matters. Nothing else is possible or happening. Because of our nature, justice condemns us. But because of God's mercy, he has saved us. I love how Spurgeon puts it, misery and sin are fully united in the human race, and mercy here performs her noblest deeds. 
We were defiled with abundant sin and only the multitude of his loving kindness could have put those sins away. We were infected with an abundance of evil and only overflowing mercy can ever cure us of all our natural disease and make us suitable for heaven. So Peter goes on to add even more amazingness to the song when he sings, not just to the mercy of God, but the mercy of God that we've received, what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's mercy is always special, but it's even more special in Christ. It's indescribably special. His mercy in his beloved son, which scripture says that he sent to us as as propitiation to prove that he loves us and to make an atonement for our sin, that he sent his love, mercy's best. And when we think about Jesus descending from heaven to earth, Jesus bleeding, Jesus paying all of our debts, the debts of his people, then we might possibly begin to understand a little bit of the mercy of God in Christ, which must be abundant, great mercy. That's how we praise God in the middle of an anyway. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Your hope that you have, sometimes we are so caught up, say, well, I'm just hoping, and we're talking about what we expect to happen tomorrow. Well, I'm just hoping, or next week, or I'm just hoping, or next month. And that's great. But here's what I want to remind you as believers. The hope that we read about most often in the scripture isn't actually hope for this life. It's the hope of glory. It's the hope of what we have and what Peter's trying to describe. That this may not change my chosen exiles. This may not ever change, but let me tell you that you have a living hope. What does that mean? It will never die. If you believe and follow Jesus, you're going to face really difficult, maybe even more difficult things in this life, but the God who raises the dead is now your God. He is now with you, not against you. God has given you a new, true, full life in his son, Jesus, and the life he gives is filled with an unconquerable, unquenchable, unassailable hope, a living hope. Then I love how Peter says, look, there's some awesome promises that you need to meditate on. Here's the worship. We're going to worship God anyway, although all this is going on. We're going to worship God anyway by his mercy and by his grace. Yes, he's going to help us do that. But then in that worship, I want you to think about and meditate on verse 4, the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. You have an infinite treasure beyond your imagination, he's saying. Its inheritance is imperishable. What does it mean? It's it's never going to die. It cannot die because our heavenly father who gave us life and adopted us into his family never dies, cannot die. Nothing can touch or steal or spoil this inheritance. It can't be used up. It's imperishable. Then he says it's undefiled. Listen, everything in this life, some shape or fashion, is going to be defiled by the fact that we live in a sinful world, but not the inheritance that we have in Christ. This is what he's reminding us. Listen, even good things, families, jobs, friends, sports, music, things that I love, all of them, they're all good, and they can be loved, and they can be enjoyed to the glory of God, but because of sin, because of the brokenness and the deceitfulness of our hearts, there's nothing perfectly good or safe or pure in this life except Jesus. But our eternal hope, our heavenly inheritance is undefiled. It's going to be perfectly true, safe, and pure, and good forever. Then lastly, he says it's unfading. Wait, like everything fades with time, right? In this life, yes, but not the inheritance that we have in Christ. Passion fades, energy fades as we age, beauty fades, genes fade. 
Your computer fades, right? You get it and you think it's the greatest thing ever. And then like three years later, it's just slow as molasses and you go throw it into a drawer somewhere because it's got all your pictures in it and you don't want to get rid of it. You don't know how to transfer it to something else. And then you just go buy another computer. So basically all your old computers just are just old photo albums. That's what they are. Or maybe that's just mine. But this is a, an inheritance, he's saying, this is never going to fade. Our inheritance in God is unfading. Our hope in eternity is living and filled with an ever-renewing love, joy, peace forever, never fading. And this glorious inheritance that we have in God because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit through Jesus Christ, is it in money? Is it in possessions? Is it in stuff? Is it in pri- uh, having some sort of position? It is in having more of God himself. That's the inheritance that waits for you in heaven is more of God himself, his perfect presence. So having given his passionate and compelling war cry of worship and having anchored every believer's hope in an imperishable, undefiled, unfading future treasure in heaven, Peter then zooms out finally and he says, I want to look at your pain as believers and ask the real question, What is God really doing in all the things that we suffer? What's God really doing in all the things that we suffer? Because we're going to go through things in life where we're going to suffer. You're going to lose things. You're going to lose people. There's going to be difficulty. We're going to suffer loss in this life. And Peter's not minimizing this. He's not minimizing their pain by suggesting it's not a big deal. But he's encouraging them by showing that God is at work. We sang that, right? If God, if it's, you're not dead, God's not done. Here's what Peter's saying. You're not dead, God's not done. So I want to encourage you that God is in the work, in your pain, and has a bigger purpose for it than you can actually see right now. There's a purpose for your pain. That's what Jesus does. He brings purpose to our pain. And as Christians, here's what I want you to know. We don't minimize pain by making light of it. We minimize pain by making much of God. We minimize pain by making much of his promises and the inheritance that we have with him that is undefiled and unfading and imperishable forever. That's how we minimize the pain that we go through in this life. And as we see more of God and as we remember more of the good things that he's accomplished and that he's promised, the suffering begins to lose its grip on our lives. And all of a sudden, every wound... The pain loses its power to cripple and to discourage us. It still hurts, but the harm is suddenly meaningful. And in comparison with eternity, momentarily light affliction, as Paul says, nothing is wasted. Can I just encourage you, church, no matter what you may be going through, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful, in Christ, nothing is wasted. Nothing Ironically and beautifully in God's providence, trials are meant by God to serve our good and happiness. Yes, they bring glory to him, but they also serve our good. God uses suffering in our lives to strengthen us, to purify our faith in his promises like nothing else. Because what you hold faithfully through trials, you are more likely to hold faithfully in the face of temptation. So, God sovereignly allows suffering to purify our hearts and strengthen our resolve for him so that we shine more brightly with his light and his sufficiency. When we hold on to Christ through the loss, when you hold on to Christ through the cancer, when you hold on to Christ through the betrayal, through the abuse, through the death of a loved one, 
When we hold on to Christ through all of those things, what we're saying is, He is more than enough. When we hold on to Christ through all those things, we're saying, He is worth it all. We sing that often here. No matter what I've been through, God, it is worth it all. And we prove that the Spirit of God lives inside of us. The suffering, very painfully, but also very powerfully, serves to prepare us for an eternity and to display the good news of the gospel to those around us right now. Did you know that that's one of the purposes that God uses your pain for in this life, is to be a testimony to those around you? Because only Christians can truly rejoice in trials. Because only Christians can find more of God in their trials. Faith like this is going to shock people around you. See, we, we, can, we understand. We understand faith in, in good times. Like I said last week, you understand peace when things are peaceful. But do you understand a faith and a joy in suffering because the world doesn't have a category for that. The world has a category for joy and joyful things, but it doesn't have a category for joy in suffering, joy in the pain, joy in the insult, joy in the marginalization, joy in the heartache. But if they see the beauty and the power of Jesus shining brightly while watching you walk through the deserts and the suffering and the exile pain of life, then they're going to believe in him for themselves. Praise God. So if God is able to use my life as a shining example of who he is, although I may be suffering in this life, he's showing himself through me to others, then praise God for what he's using my life for. Can I encourage you with a few things today before we leave to help you in this suffering that maybe you go through? And maybe you're not right now. Maybe things are great. or Maybe everybody thinks everything's great and you know deep down inside it's not. But can I encourage you that one of the ways that we are able to praise God anyway, one of the ways that we're able to meditate on the things that that God has for us is to imagine what is waiting at home. Just imagine what's waiting at home. I remember as a young father, and I had some really, really, really bad days at work early on, painful. And after we had, you know, our first couple of kids and I remember actually after we had Caleb the first time and I would get so excited just to go home and he'd be sitting on the floor smiling. No matter, he didn't have any idea what my day was like. I was like, man, I'm just going to imagine what's waiting on. My wife's there, my kid's there, then, you know, my kids and then more kids. And then it was like, maybe I don't want to go home. (laughs) No, imagine what's waiting at home. Am I talking about home? I'm talking about God and all the good that he has for us. And before you can truly experience the good and the suffering, you've got to imagine what it's like in the light of what is waiting for us in heaven. That's our home. See, when we get so comfortable here that heaven never crosses our minds, we're going to have a hard time walking through the deserts of this life. The longer we stay in a foreign place, and this is a foreign place, the more comfortable we become and we forget about our real home. And Peter tells us in verse 4 that our inheritance is being kept in heaven. So if you've got this great inheritance, you're going to want to get it. It ain't here. It's being kept in heaven for us. So before Peter sympathizes with their suffering, and he does sympathize with their suffering, he turns their eyes heavenward, and he says, remember what you have at home. If you're going to be able to worship, and if you're going to be able to suffer well, remember what you've got waiting for you at home. And listen, here's the second thing. I want you to rejoice in the refining. This isn't easy. 
But listen, I want to know what good God is doing through the suffering and the pain that I go through in this life. I think it's impossible unless God shows us some of the good that he's doing in the suffering. Verse 6 says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. And it's why, so it can forge our faith is what he says. I remember saying years ago, I don't want to go through refining and not be aware of what God's doing. Like, I don't want to be stuck in a forge, a crucible of life where the fires of life seem to be burning and then get out and go, I don't know what that was for. Or ignore it and then go through it again. No, I want whatever God's doing in my life, I want to be able at least to be aware of how he's using it for his glory and my good. Who wants to suffer without transformation? I mean, that's kind of sick. Because suffering strips away blessings that help us see if anything has kind of taken the place of God in our life. Sometimes suffering and pain helps us subtly see what might have displaced God as our refuge. Sometimes suffering takes us to places where we slowly realize that we've begun to compromise in areas in this life that aren't pleasing to God. And and now we are aware of them in a different way. As one writer put it, the shadows of suffering light the long road of sanctification like nothing else. See, Satan wants our suffering to cause us to curse God and to walk away. But God wants to use this suffering, this fire, to refine us and forge us and build our faith in him. We just have to let him do that work. And then lastly, I want to tell you, never suffer alone. God saved you. As the word said, the, the glorious God and Father saved you through the sanctifying work of Jesus or the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus to make you a part of a chosen family. You're not supposed to suffer alone. And as safe as that may feel at times, it's not self-protection. You may assume you're less able to share and serve because you're going through suffering, but what if you're actually more able to share and serve because of what you're going through? What if you got an ability to empathize and speak to people in places that you never would have otherwise? See, suffering can isolate us from one another, leaving us feel more and more alone. And you may have the impulse to get away and focus on your own grief and your own healing. And there can be time for that. But I want you to understand that God comforts us. He strengthens us. He heals us. And he makes us whole, not off in a corner by ourselves, but within the context of the body of Christ called the church. That's why we need each other. To be a part of the body, to press into the people that God has given you, that he's, that he's put in the trenches so that we can remind each other of the truth together. His chosen exilic community called the church. All the more when you feel tired and weak and like you want to run away. That's when you should actually run more into the people and the body of Christ that he's given us to do this life with together so that we can see that God is praiseworthy even in the middle of our pain. And let me just close to remind you that this is all possible because Jesus came from a kingdom of light into a very dark place that was unsettling and uncomfortable and it wasn't, you know, sleeping in the most wonderful of conditions, much like my story at the beginning, except in a 
cosmic way. Here is God, the exile, sending Jesus, if you will, leaving the perfect light of heaven, coming into the darkness of the world, a stranger in the world that he made. He was accused as a common criminal, treated as he had no power, no rights, no dignity. He was wounded to heal us. His nails sealed the promise of heaven for you. His tears drenched your suffering with meaning and hope and even joy. His blood bought you a family so large you can't count them. Bound together by love that cannot be measured, cannot be broken. Jesus suffered to show us how to suffer well. And because Jesus came, because he came on our behalf, we are now chosen. Chosen exiles. This isn't your home, friends. Now, it can be comfortable at times, but don't let it become too comfortable. It can be very painful at times, but don't let the pain push you away from God. Let it push you into him. Let's thank God for what he's doing in us as chosen exiles in this world today for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you're doing here today. I thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our midst and in the hearts and the lives of the people that are watching online, but those that are gathered here today. And I think there's something important for those that are here that God wants to do in your life. Of course, wherever you may be, I want you to know that God loves you and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And you may be going through some difficulty, some suffering, some pain. You may feel like an exile yourself, but I want you to know you're chosen. You're already loved. More than you could even imagine. We've already sung that this morning. And I want you to ask God, maybe even today, that you could possibly see like a 30,000 foot view, some of the purpose of the things that you're going through for his purpose and for your good, for his glory and your good. The much like Job, that whatever you may be suffering through, that wouldn't cause you to curse God and run away, but it would cause you to run into him and to cry out to him and to worship him as Peter exhorts us to do, to worship God in the middle of the suffering. And today, as we sing one final song, no matter what you might be going through, could you just for one moment more worship God in the middle of whatever it is that you're dealing with? Let him meet you there. And maybe you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And today could be a day where you confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Confessing Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Asking him to forgive you of your sin and to come into your heart. Take up residence there. In that moment, your life will be forever changed. You become one of the chosen exiles. And everything that you go through in this life can now have purpose and meaning. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.